Where is the data, Mike DeWine? We want to know the facts on how the coronavirus spreads. That's the first topic today on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Chris Ronowski, and Jane Cahoon. It's a Thursday. How are you all? Good. <laughs> Very excited. Ready for the weekend, but still have two days to go through. And of course, Mike DeWine's making the end of the week go down easy because he has a two o'clock Friday briefing, which will keep everybody hopping into the evening. Let's get started with the news we know about. Why isn't Mike DeWine releasing the full contact tracing data that would show how the coronavirus is spreading? This is something, Jane Cahoon, that we have been on for quite some time. We want the data. We want to know what two months of contact tracing have, have shown. He promised a week ago that he would release it Tuesday, and he hasn't. They've released, they continue to release anecdotal information, which is interesting, but pretty much useless. How, <laughs> what percentage of cases are coming from bars? What percentage of cases are coming from family gatherings? And the sad thing is, is when they released more anecdotal data yesterday, they basically said they're not keeping it in a way you can search, which throw on the flag. I don't buy it. Yeah. What's going on? <laughs> okay, I'm going to explain this, Chris, but, but it's not going to be acceptable to you. The, the <laughs> Ohio Department of Health says that the, their disease reporting system works in a way that it, it, it prohibits this, you know, aggregate information from from them being able to provide us with this aggregate information because it's a person-based disease incidence reporting system and it doesn't index information based on outbreak. It It's just by individual. And so they said without manually reviewing every COVID case, it's impossible to identify every every outbreak. <laughs> Do you know how preposterous that is? They're, they're doing research and they're claiming I'm not no... defending it. I'm just explaining. <laughs> <what they're doing. laughs> when does anybody do research without a spreadsheet? Of course, there's a spreadsheet. Every researcher is flush with spreadsheets. To say it's not searchable, I just don't buy it. Look, the, even if it's just text-based, you can search it. Like you could search for the word bar and see how many times it pops up in a Word document. I'm not buying it. The only way what they're saying could be true is if they're writing it down on yellow pads, which I don't know, given how cockeyed this state operates, I guess that's a possibility. I, they, I, they've actually suggested that that we start checking with the local health departments. You know, there's like something like 113 of them. So that would be an easy way to compile this information, wouldn't it? Yeah, look, there's there's one of two things going on here, uh, which Chris Wardowski and I were talking about before the podcast. One is... They don't want to release the data because it, most of the time they can't figure out how somebody got it or the bar information is really bad for the lawsuit, which you know, the, it'll show that bars aren't the big source of spread, which will help the bar owners stay open past 10. The second and in the less believable is they're too dumb to keep this in a searchable <laughs> format. And, and if they're that dumb, they shouldn't be in the job because if we have an army of people out right now asking people pretty much how you got it, which would be hugely useful to those of us who don't want to get it. Right. And they're not releasing it, even though he promised a week ago to release it. So I, I just and, and I they're think, not even promising that he's going to have it at the next briefing, which now is Friday instead of today. But, you know, they did release 
what they did called anecdotal information that's a little more than we've we've gotten and it does interestingly bolster their case on the bars they said that since july 1st at least 50 bars and restaurants across the state were associated with with outbreaks and that 11 outbreaks were traced to daycares eight to churches and four to schools or universities. But anecdotes are what you release when you want to steer people away. I mean, I I can tell you all sorts of individual horror stories about things, but it doesn't mean there's a trend. What we need to know are the trends. Look, I suggest that at the Friday briefing, if we get a chance to ask the question, that ought to be our question. How can you not be keeping the data in a searchable form? That's the answer we got yesterday, that we, we, we don't keep it in a searchable form. What kind of morons do you have doing the research? <laughs> Let's ask it. Let's put them on. You the- think we should be that diplomatic when we ask yeah, the question? Yeah, I think, I think I, you know, I, I don't know which of our reporters is going, but Jeremy Pelzer has had a knack for asking very pointed questions, but seeming so polite when he does so. And Laura Hancock, same thing. She's very polite. Well, while it's asking- going to be Andrew, but I think he's asked some pretty good questions. Too, he, uh, so. Andrew, Andrew is very, very pointed in when he asks a question. But that that's it. I mean, this is critically important information for our public health. And they're basically saying, yeah, we, we decided not to do it that way and it's like well can i can i ask a question maybe nobody knows the answer to this question but did they specifically buy new software to do this like is this something that the state had to get in order to do this kind of contact tracing (laughs) i mean mean, did they pay money for this crappy system it's like the stone tablets man i mean that's a problem (laughs) well that's my question is like who who made this system and and if if it is a new system i i would find it really hard to believe that there isn't a way to export data out of that system you know even even some of the most archaic municipal record keeping systems allow you to export a what they call a comma delimited uh text file which will allow you to put it into like a spreadsheet program like excel and actually do an analysis of it right and you're right this is not credible (laughs) It's just right. not credible. It just doesn't make sense. Fact, though, it is an old system that they, they didn't upgrade. So, like, let's see, what's worse, this system or the one that they were using in the unemployment department? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, the good I, news is it'll be up and running in, tw- in 2035. <laughs> we, we, need to, we need to keep the heat on. This is inexcusable. And Mike DeWine, the head of government, it's on him. We want answers and we want them now this week in the CLE. What's going on with the United Way of Greater Cleveland, which just reduced its workforce while announcing a redefined mission? Laura Johnston, it seems like every six months, no, maybe every three months, the United Way of Greater Cleveland announces a, a redefined mission. My head is spinning from all of the changes they make, and I, I can't get a feel for what's going on. Is this all about the fact that nobody gives to the United Way like they used to, and they just have to keep cutting to deal with that? What's up? Well, that I mean, that is a big part of it. And the coronavirus has affected the United Way like it's affected everybody else. Um, not only are the needs up, 
but the donations are down. If you think about the United Way, most people come into contact with them and forgiving at least at their workplace. They have a lot of work campaigns and nobody is in their workplace. They're not like being asked to participate in this raffle or, you know, fill out this form for the United Way. I mean, they used to, they were famous for like their big pancake flip, right? Um, down a public square. None of that is going on. So they have eliminated 12 positions. These are full-time clerical and middle management jobs. So they're down to 115 employees, which is still, you know, a big organization. But you're right. This The agency has been transitioning by their count for at least three years. So they used to be kind of a be-all money-giving nonprofit. And now they're very focused in what it's calling a data-driven model. They want to focus on ending racism and helping people facing eviction from their homes, which are two really current issues um, in Cleveland and across the country. Um, just to give you an idea, though, of the need, the United Way's 211 Help Link line has received more than 65,000 calls from Cuyahoga County residents alone. Call volume doubled at times. And during the pandemic, they've actually doubled their county region. So they're serving 14 counties right now. But But if you go back a year ago, six months ago, you will see long pieces, speeches, and things they've written saying uh-huh. they are refocusing 100% to deal with poverty. So agencies that don't deal with poverty, they're going to cut them loose. Poverty is the issue in Greater Cleveland. And, you know, we did the Greater Cleveland Project. There, there's a lot of thought behind dealing with multi-generation poverty. But now it's racism because it's the flavor of the day for them, right? The, oh, the George Floyd protests. Everybody's talking about ref- defunding police. Let's focus on racism. Well, what happened to the whole refocus on poverty and all of the people that were invested in task forces to to deal with that? I, I'm just I'm having a hard time understanding the constant redefinition of the United Way. I'm not going to argue with you. I I feel like, you know, we wrote the story. The last one we wrote was in February and we all walked out of a meeting with them going, didn't we do this already? Like we were very confused. And so I feel like I've edited this story at least four times uh, where they say they're redefining and they have been cutting down on who they're giving money to. But I mean, it's still far in the future. They're, They're talking about starting cutting in 2022 was the was what they were telling us in February. So I think there's more reporting to do here. I'm not going to pretend like I can understand everything going on in the organization. Um, But whether the coronavirus has uh, winnowed that timeline, I'm not sure. But you're you're right. They have been focusing on poverty. They have a community hub that they've said is going to focus on three groups, which they said was children, working adults, and the elderly. And I was like, doesn't that cover like most people? Um, so but, I, but Laura, if you go back to that February meeting where they came in before yeah. we all stopped being in our building, I was really aggressive with them. I mean, I, they talked for, you know, a half an hour and I finally couldn't take it anymore. I said, you've come in here a dozen times to say exactly the same thing. What what are you doing? It's ex- it's what you said. I've edited this, this story over and over again. And they pretty much acknowledged I was right, but said, you know, but we're going to have some data. I, so. To come back now, I get it. The world has changed. But, you know, the world has changed because of COVID-19. Racism has paralyzed society for for quite a long time. You would have thought the racism argument would have been prevalent during poverty. And I get it. It's all part of the, the same package. I just redefining it, sending out a note, 
saying we're redefining our mission to deal with these things after having told the community for three years that they were redefining their mission to deal with something else. It, it just got our head spinning. And I wonder what the long-term future is. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. With all the debate about whether children should return to school buildings, and Laura Johnson and I have had quite a bit of debate, why aren't we talking about outdoor classes, at least in the beginning of the year? Look, COVID-19 has a much harder time spreading outside than it does inside. The, the temperatures in Cleveland in September and late August and early October are pretty pretty nice. Why aren't we thinking about taking the kids outside to teach them? Chris, this was a this was an interesting story, and and when I got into it, it it one of the things that surprised me is how how reasonable the answer seemed. But I'll I'll sort of break it down a little bit. Um, one of the things that we kind of looked back at was um, during the the sort of age of tuberculosis in the United States, there were cities that pushed classrooms outside in New York. They were having classes on rooftops and, and there were other communities that, that saw the opportunity to, to, you know, put kids outside and keep them educated. We have not really done that in the United States and, and, and really in Northeast Ohio, there's no real plan to do so uh, in any meaningful way from any of the school districts that we spoke to, but it's happening. Denmark did it. And, and they, they, kept its schools open in spring and reduced the size of classes and moved a lot of them outside and, and, you know, public and, and the strategy worked because they didn't see a rise in cases linked to schools. Um, and other countries like India have taken a similar approach to uh, students who are returning to school in, in recent months. Um, but the people we talked to said that the issue here is one of technology that it would be difficult to to move a lot of classrooms that now rely on Wi-Fi and things like that outside. And, you know, they don't have time to plan. It's there's a lot of logistical things that go into it. But the I think the main difference, and, and he does touch on this in the story, is that in Denmark, they spent money. You know, they had money to spend on actually, you know, putting, you know, putting this plan into action. And, you know, in the United States, we've in, in, in Ohio specifically, um, we've gone the other way. We've taken money away from school districts because our economy took a hit and we have to balance the budget. And so, you know, it, it's it's a matter of resources on that end, too, that that we just, you know, I mean, it, it's it's amazing that we're even talking about opening schools, given how much they're cutting from school districts. But you know, here we are. And, and so, you know, when this idea comes up, it's, it's, it's one of, it's one of resources. It's one of weather, you know, I mean, it gets, you know, it gets cold here. And so what do yeah, you do? I mean, it, it, it would be, it, I mean, there's so many. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's, 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 schools are like any other business here now, you know, we're, we're making these decisions of whether it's, it's, it makes more sense for us to do this from home as opposed to re-outfitting the place that we go to work every day and, and incurring all of that additional cost to make sure that people can stay safe in a building. It's like, well, maybe it's cheaper just to keep people at home or maybe it, but. Okay. Can I, can I jump in here? Sure. It's Laura Johnston. You knew I wanted to talk about this. Of course. Um, so my, one of my friends brought this up and she called it great British baking show style. You know, if you watch the show, they have a big tent in the middle of rainy England and they do everything in this giant tent. Well, I was like, this makes a lot of sense to me. And when Evan McDonald, who did the story, talked to doctors, and one of them is is a doctor I've talked to before. She's a pediatrician who has two kids. She's like, we could and should talk about this. But 
but it seems like educators are like, no, it's just, it's too cold and we don't have the electricity and it, it, you know, it's not safe. And I just feel like nobody wanted to even consider it. It was just like a whole lot of reasons why we couldn't. But but Laura, is it 10? Outside, I mean, a tent is still an enclosed space, right? I, I'm so, not saying it's the perfect solution. I just think that we should have thought well, more but, innovatively. But, but also, keep in mind, Laura, like there, this also, you know, there's also a gap in, a, like, a reality gap between suburban school districts and urban school districts. You know, but they're all making this, their own decisions, right? Anyway. They're all making their own decisions, but you know, you're here. We are creating another a, a level of inequity in education. You know, you have an urban school district where there's no space. There's issues of safety. There are issues of uh, definitely issues of resources that are well documented. I mean, it. I mean, in Rocky River or Lakewood, fine, whatever you can do that. But you know, now we're creating a you know, a play. There another, so, another I, sort of I don't disagree, system. but there are so many inequities in education that they're having. I'm not saying we should make them worse, but now we've got so some schools that are choosing to go back in person, some schools that aren't. We've got the whole digital divide to worry about. I'm just, I think it should have been part of the discussion starting back in March well, because, of course, they don't have plan, time to plan now. You can have whatever you want in, in education if you're willing to pay for it. So well, if you want your taxes point. to go up, Fine, have outdoor classes. Go ahead, but you know that's on you. But, I you just know, want to tell, say, tell all of the angry parents of Rocky River, you know, <laughs> pay I, more taxes. I, I just want to say that parents throughout Northeast Ohio should be grateful that Laura is here to carry their banner because she, <laughs> she does that quite well. It's this week in the CLE. Are bar owners making any headway in their battle against Mike DeWine's order that they stop selling alcohol at 10 p.m. each night? Jane Cahoon, I thought that the bar owners would have a pretty strong case here because there's not much evidence to show they are a big cause of this. And their argument is you should go after the bad guys. Uh, but they're, what, what, what is the status? Are they getting anywhere in their legal fight? Uh, not really. A, a group of bar owners in Columbus sued in, in Franklin County Court, but yesterday they were not successful in persuading a judge to grant a temporary restraining order that would have blocked this rule that they can't sell alcohol after 10 p.m. And it doesn't mean the case is over. It still goes on, but but this rule remains in effect. And, and also, this is just Franklin County, so even if they did block the rule, it's kind of questionable about what kind of statewide effect that would have. But but anyway, the the judge said that the Liquor Control Commission, which um, technically enacted this rule and then DeWine signed it, clearly has the right to regulate bars and the hours they operate. So yeah, right now they're kind of evaluating what they do next. Um, and as we've discussed, you know, the, the state has not provided the hard data showing that the bars are to blame here. So the bars are mad about that. And they're, they're mad that, you know, because of a few bad actors who weren't following the social distancing rules, they're, they're all being punished. You know, I don't think we talked about this on the podcast last week, but you and I had a conversation last week where I was trying to understand why DeWine went through the liquor board to set the 10 o'clock order because every other health order, including halting the election, they just did. <laughs> And and now we kind of understand why, because in a legal, you know, he, he knew he'd be challenged legally. Mm-hmm. Surprising it's not in Lake County. But but this gives him his basis because the judge is looking at it saying, well, 
that's the liquor control board's job. They have the full right to set the rules for how liquor is sold. So actually, you got to salute Mike DeWine for coming up with <laughs> so far legal advice. Yeah, it's a good winning strategy, and I understand it now because I I didn't understand it then. Okay, well we'll have to see if they get anywhere. Of course, it all does come down to what you said. What does the data show? If the data does not show that huge number of bars are a significant source of the spread, I would think they'd have a much stronger case to fight back. It's this week in the CLE. There's a group that wants to create a property tax to support RTA. What are these people thinking? Laura Johnson, before we want to, we get into this, I just want to point out that RTA already gets well over 80% of its budget. I'm pretty sure that's the number from a sales tax from people in Cuyahoga County, most of whom are not using RTA. So why would we also have to pay a property tax to fund this organization that is is just not financially strong? Uh, yeah, that is a good question. I love Courtney Astolfi's story that was like, they're supporting a property tax. There is no property tax on the ballot. I was like, okay. <laughs> they, they want more service and they... They want, they say that the, the service has gone down while the fares have gone up. This is a group called the Downtown Cleveland Residents, their community relations board. They're recognized by the city of Cleveland. And at their July forum, they passed this resolution. They say that service has been cut 29% since 2006. Fares have doubled in the same period and ridership is way down. So they want a way to support the RTA. But, I kind of lost on it. But Well, I mean, I, it seems like, Look, there's two arguments, right? One is RTA is green. If you can get more people to use RTA, you save the environment. Although, you know, how many empty buses have you seen regularly in these last years? <laughs> the front line. But there's another argument that's people are in financial hardship right now. Proposing a new tax, one, it's probably just not wise, but two, it's folly. I, I mean, this is not a community that in times of financial distress passes new taxes. They might renew an existing tax, but new taxes generally don't do well in tough times. So I, I just didn't know if this is a group that's, you know, popped up as a bunch of do-gooders that have no basis in the way things work or or what. But I, I mean, creating a new tax for RTA when we're still struggling to understand how financially inept they've been seems like a waste of time. Yeah, I mean, I I don't disagree, but I don't use the RTA. And I guess this is the downtown Cleveland residents, which is a growing group of people. And if you want to be able to live in Cleveland and not have a car and feel like you can get around, then you want a good public transit system. And, you know, there are a lot of city planners that would argue that good public transit would help economic development and help young people move to your town. But, but I is think it good public transit if no one's taking it? Well, I mean, and that's a good point. But I think you're right. This is not the time to be adding taxes to people. Okay, well, we'll have to see where that one goes. It, uh, it, it, that was one that was a surprise, given what people are going through right now. It's this week in the CLE. What's the point of the sales tax holiday that is happening this weekend? Every year around this time, as people are preparing to go back to school, Ohio officials have created a sales tax holiday, but kids are staying home. I'm not sure, and I'm sure Laura Johnson, our parents' representative, will weigh in on this at some point, <laughs> whether school districts have even put out materials list. But Chris Ranowski, what what how does this work? What what is the reason for doing it? And and how much do people actually save? Well it's it's actually designed as a back to school perks. So people can get 
buy clothing and school supplies and and whatnot. I, I believe it's in Cuyahoga County alone. I think we we get like an exemption of like eight percent of of state and local taxes. The sales tax in Ohio is five point seven five percent. Um, but the state allows local governments to collect a an additional local option sales tax of up to two and a two and a quarter. And of course, Cuyahoga County uh, does the full two and a quarter. <laughs> and uh, and and so, you know, the tax holiday, which runs from Friday to Sunday, basically allows you to be exempt on certain items. And those items are um, school supplies, instructional materials. Um, I believe there's clothing is in there. So it does give people sort of a, a reprieve from paying a tax for, you know, and it helps people save some money. But if kids aren't going back to school, do they need new school clothes? <laughs> you want me to weigh in on this one? I mean, I, look, you're talking to somebody who hasn't put on a dress shirt or long pants since the lockdown. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nobody's – who's buying clothes, honestly? Well, so kids whose feet have grown and all of a sudden need size six shoes, I have to buy those. But um, it's a good question. I think kids are – I mean, they have – you go to Target and the whole section is full of back-to-school supplies. I guess the idea is that at some point – you're going to maybe need them. Our school sends like a, you know, you could buy the entire box at one time. So I don't have to go looking for four different colors of expo markers or whatever. But um, no, I don't think everybody is in a real rush to buy this stuff because. Did you get a list this year? Did they send a list? We always get it in the spring. Yeah. So, um, and then you can buy the box through an online sale and, and not have to worry about it. So yeah, they're out there. Um, whether or not people are choosing to buy it right now is a different question. I mean, have you laid in a supply of notebooks and pens and all the normal flotsam? That yeah, you I've got them. School? They're sitting in my basement, along with all of the stuff they sent me home from last year that I haven't done anything with. Oh, keep in mind, like Laura, Laura is a planner. So like, like, I assume she had, the, I figured she had the school supplies bought last year for this year. And Actually, yeah, she probably bought, year ahead. <laughs> she got a lifetime of school supplies when she was pregnant. That's, let's just face it. She's had a supply in her basement. <laughs> to, to make it through life. I just wonder if a whole lot of people are out buying this stuff, but I, I mean, I guess it's for people that are living to the margin, close to the margin. This is a helpful thing. I'm just not sure how much in the way school supplies are being sold. We'll have to see. It's this week in the CLE. What are the new plans for Ohio by Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden and the independent candidate Kanye West? Jane Cahoon, we're more and more in play. We talked about it earlier in the week, and now we have some money being spent and a real wrinkle with the Kanye West possibly being on the ballot. Let's go through each of those. Okay, so the Biden campaign is doing this huge ad buy in 15 states, including Ohio. They're spending $280 million, although they won't give us a state-by-state breakdown, so we don't know specifically what's being spent in Ohio. But anyway, the the Trump campaign is already planning more than $18 million in television ads in Ohio for the eight weeks leading up to the election. So we're going to be saturated with all this stuff once again. So, so yes, once again, we're talking about Ohio being competitive. And uh, as you might know, the president is in Ohio today for an appearance at the Whirlpool factory in Clyde and also a private high dollar fundraiser in Bratinall. Yeah, well, there's going to be a boat parade to welcome him, which is strange. Um, yeah, but what, right. what's going on with Kanye West? I mean, this, yeah. this is odd. It, well, he filed 
petitions yesterday by the deadline uh, as an independent candidate for president in Ohio. And if his if 5,000 of his, you know, 14,000 signatures that he submitted are certified, then he's going to appear as an independent candidate on Ohio's presidential ballot. But there's basically a belief here that, you know, Republicans are helping him. There's all sorts of Republican operatives whose fingerprints are on this. And so the thought is they're he's just a disruptor and he's he they're trying to mess with Democrats and, and pull votes away from Biden wherever they can. Yeah, but it could work, right? I mean, you, you could have uh, what would have been pretty much guaranteed Biden votes going into the polling place, seeing Kanye West's name and you know not being on fire for Biden voting for him and and helping Donald Trump. I mean, it's, it I seems guess it like... depends on how educated the electorate is and, you know, if they know what they're voting for. I mean, he's he's not a serious candidate. Is is he getting a lot of criticism uh, because he's he's messing with this? Is there and I imagine Democrats are not happy about this. Yeah, I don't know how much criticism he's getting. You know, they're probably just trying to ignore it okay well can i I weigh in here it's it's, i I think what what's awful about the kanye west thing is that it it, you know it they're being so transparent about what they were doing what they're doing you know I, i you know when you go back to 2016 and you see what impact a jill stein had on an election you know you can make a case that well you know she she ran in the green party and it was an independent thing this is like you know like you said there are gop operatives dropping these petitions off like well-known uh republican figures who are are actually involved in this and i think you know when when we think about the notion of of why a two-party system is a bad system something like this sort of diminishes the future ability to actually have a serious third party in this country. And, 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 you know, and, and frankly, you know, as somebody who used to be a really big Kanye West fan, it's, it's just kind of a bummer to see this happening because it's, it's, it's so cynical. It's just, but so I, I, you know, I, you know, I, I think this is something that could actually backfire because I, I don't know. I mean, there'd like, be a I big just, public relations campaign. No, I, I think, I think, him. I think you're, I, I, you know, I, there are Trump voters who will vote for Kanye West. I, you know, it's, oh, 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 it's, oh, oh. it's not, it's not just a thing that's going to like the whole strategy here is they think that it's going to s- siphon African-American voters away from Joe Biden. And I think, I, I honestly think that it's something that could backfire, that it could siphon, you know, what black support, like what African-American support Donald Trump has away from Donald Trump. So, you know, there's, you know, it's, I, you can see the strategy, like you can, if you take like a, a far enough away view of this, you can see what their strategy is. But if you actually look at it, it's something that could backfire. Okay. It's this week in the CLE. Good podcast, guys. Another great discussion. I love Laura standing in for parents everywhere. <laughs> uh, it just, it, it, it just, she's a bit of a whipping post because we're all taking shots and she stands there and fights back strongly. And then I think she hears from people saying, thank you, Laura. I agree with you. <laughs> some, some positive vibes. So thank you, Laura. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Jane. Thanks, everybody, for listening to This Week in the CLE. We'll be back to end the week with another episode tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning.